Hey there, it's Ben. And Nicole. From the Webbies. We wanted to let you know the nominees for the 21st annual Webby Awards have been announced. Woo! And that means it's time for you, the listening, interneting public, to decide who wins a Webby People's Voice Award. Awesome. It's really easy. Just head over to vote.webbyawards.com and start voting for your favorites in every category from now until Thursday, April 20th. Winners are announced on Tuesday, April 25th. Wait, where do we go again? Vote.webbyawards.com. Vote.webbyawards.com. Go vote. Welcome to the Webby Podcast, where we share the stories of the internet in more than five word speeches. Wow. You guys love websites. So excited! Live streaming my pants! Smithsonian, come. Feed your brain. Do it for the vine. Here's your host, Webby's executive director, David Michelle Davies. Hey, welcome back to the Webby podcast. One of the things I love about the internet is how nerdy things like NASA or the Smithsonian are super popular on Instagram and Twitter. It makes me feel like on some level... The internet people have the right priorities. Another example is National Geographic, or Nat Geo, as the kids call it. This is an organization that has been around for more than 100 years, and it is by far one of the most popular accounts on almost every social platform. I mean, they have 75 million followers on Instagram. I just think that's, like, super cool. Today on the program, a real story behind a story. Anand Varma is a photographer for Nat Geo who worked for nearly two years on a story about bees, and eventually created one of the most incredible time-lapse films. Here is a bee egg as it hatches into a larva. Before you go any further, stop here and watch the film. It's only a minute or so, and we've got it all set up for you to watch easily on your phone. Just go to webbyawards.com slash bees. Webbyawards.com, W-E-B-B-Y, awards.com slash bees. You'll be so happy you did, I promise. We'll wait here for a second while you watch. Okay, you're back. Today we are talking to Anand Varma, the artist who made that film. I ask a lot of questions about bees, about how he made that video, and what it's like to be one of the first National Geographic photographers who learned how to take photos using the internet. Anand, welcome to the Webby Podcast. Thank you. Let's take a step back and tell me a little bit about what you learned about the state of bees out there in the United States and in, you know, Europe and in the world. What did you learn? Where are we now? What's going on with yeah, bees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess that was really the first step was, was trying to learn as much as I could about the issue. And what I learned is that it's really complicated. I mean, and that's, that was an interesting aspect for me because the narrative you, you see online and in media most of the media is is a very simplified sort of as often as a very oversimplified issue of oh we're using too many pesticides that's killing bees they're going to go extinct and we're all going to starve you know and that's a that's a very powerful but also somewhat overstated narrative and what it ends up being is all of these stress factors from multiple different sources have converged to create uh, a problem, especially in the United States and Europe. And, and that's, all, that's actually a really hard story to tell in a compelling way. You know, no, people don't really, people kind of go to sleep if you're, 
if you're trying to say, oh, well, it's, it's, it's complicated and it's all of these different things interacting. Uh, whereas if you can simplify can't just it and blame say, pesticides. Yeah, or it's not you, just, just say, because yeah, people are terrible. Or exactly, exactly. Or, or like you know, once people are used to this idea of like, well, we're wrecking the environment and here's just one more example of how people are terrible and, uh, and how we just need to, you know, get corporations to be responsible and this is all going to go away. Um, and so that was, you know, that was the, that was a challenge for me. And it still is a challenge to figure out a concise way to get people interested in the story. And I think that's, that's what the role of where the role of the pictures come in is that if you can get somebody engaged enough from the visuals, then there's more time, there's more space to have this conversation about, Hey, look, this is, this is complicated and it's, there's no easy solution here. Uh, and there's no simple cause. So if if you are interested in the story because of the pictures, maybe you'll stick around long enough to learn something. Right. About so it. it's a it's sort of a jumping off point for for people. Yeah. What um you you know I think uh, we we were talking a little bit about the sort of state of beekeeping in the United States versus Europe. There's some differences there. Right? Yeah. The scale here is much larger. In your TED talk, you show I believe some of the you show photos that sort of really bring that scale to life. Can you talk about that for a little? Yeah. Bit? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, what happens here? I mean, there's there's hobbyist beekeepers and there's people who keep a couple hundred hives to to produce honey. Uh, but what ends up happening, what where a lot of the food production side of things comes from, are from these commercial scale beekeepers, and they're up into the tens of thousands of hives. The, the guy I photographed, uh, Brett Ad, has seventy two thousand beehives, and in in Europe, a big beekeeper maybe one thousand, and the rest of the world, most folks have a hundred or two hundred, and they. They have them on the side of their field and they're pollinating their own orchards. They don't have this operation we have here where they're putting them on semi-trucks and, and trucking them all across the country. Uh, so so if, you're, if you're a farmer here, for instance, you can, I mean, we'll you're, you're, app joke, but you can call up yeah, a beekeeper exactly. and they'll yeah. bring bees over and do the work and then they take the bees away and they go somewhere else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so um, that's a way to you know produce a lot of food in a small amount of, of area, but it comes with its own set of downsides and risks, especially when there's a new disease that comes in, that disease or that pest can can sweep through the bee population much more quickly because they're getting moved around so much. Uh, there's some stress involved in, in you know, trucking bees around. And so, I mean, like in, so in the U.S., like this actually maps back to this, our agricultural system. This maps all the way back to the type of food people choose to buy. It ties into the question of scale. I think over the past hundred years, we made these decisions about, you know, we had meat shortages, we had food shortages, like how do we solve these issues to make sure there's enough food on the table that people can afford? And we got really good at doing that. We got really good at producing a lot of food for less money in, le in a smaller amount of space. And that's, that's, that's all a good thing, but we're also starting to see the downsides of that and seeing that it's, it can be less resilient to disturbances than a system where we're growing a lot of different kinds of food in the same place. Uh, where pests aren't able to sort of come in and, and wipe through a field that's all, you know, genetically very similar. And so there's a question going forward about, you know, what's the, what's the right balance? Like, it's not, you know, I, it's hard to take a, a side on this just because, just because I can afford to buy, you know, expensive, organic, locally produced food. I, I'm uncomfortable saying, look, everybody's going to have to be able to do this. Yeah. And I, at the same time, I see... Look, you know, pumping tons of pesticides, pumping tons of uh, growing food in the way we're doing it now is not 
sustainable either. Right. So the choices people make about what they buy to eat has influence, you know, which yeah. and sometimes, you know, your your point is taken and that uh inexpensive food is also a good thing. Yeah. 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 Um, but there's always there's a other sides to it, which I think it just sort of unveils like the complicated nature of the B question you were sort of starting off trying to explain to yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think as my my role as a photographer is not so much to say, look, I did all the research on this area. I'm now an expert. I'm going to tell you what to do and think. More my goal is to try to open up a new box for people and say, well, there's cool stuff here. Can I bring you into this world and let you make your own decision based on these new little tidbits of things that I think are interesting? So how did you first start off getting into bees? Yeah, well, actually, bees started out as a request from National Geographic magazine. Uh, the previous story had been on mind-controlling parasites, and they, they liked the photos I took there, and they thought, oh, you'll, you'll have a nice you know, time with honeybees, so why don't we, we need to do this story. Can you figure out an interesting visual approach to that? So it started out, I, it didn't actually start out as a science project for me. It was more about, okay, honeybees are in the news. Uh, everybody's sort of heard of, okay, honeybee declines. Um, there's a million pictures of them out there. How do I take a fresh visual approach to this that will go along with this new story that this writer is, is approaching? Um, and so that's where I, where I started with it. And I sort of ended up turning it into this sort of science exploration project where I, it, it didn't really work out to just take a new visual approach. It, it, it wasn't enough to just try to make interesting images of bees. It became more important to figure out what is the science behind their decline? What are researchers doing to understand these bee issues? And how do I show that process? And so it, it sort of pivoted into more of a science communication story than sort of artistic approach. You know, I think our listeners, maybe when they first hear the intro, they might think like, why are we having, why are we talking to a photographer who photographed bees on a podcast theoretically about the internet? But I think that something that's so interesting from your film, and if people watch the film, we'll encourage them after to go watch it, is there's a new way of telling stories out there using all the tools of digital media, using camera equipment, using audio, using the way we can interact with the stories online. Is that uh, something you were really interested in the, using the tech to really expose the story? Again, I, I think that's not something that I set out to do at the beginning. It's just sort of appeared as an opportunity along the way. And I think that comes from the fact that I'm probably the first photographer at National Geographic who learned how to take pictures from the internet. I mean, I, I'm probably the first who has never owned a film camera. And I, so I, I grew up in this digital age. I grew up reading blogs and watching time lapses online and and using the resources on the web to be able to pivot quickly and learn new skills and reach out to people when I had a new idea and say, okay, you know, what is it going to take to make a time lapse? Oh, I can I can immediately go online. I can figure out a bunch of stuff. I can and I had the backing of National Geographic to be able to work on this for long enough that I could take all of these sort of detours along the way. Uh, especially, the, it's, it's funny, the time lapse has become the most visible aspect of that story, and it was never part of the original plan. It was something that I saw as an interesting opportunity as I was trying to take these pictures. I had this question of like, huh, 
I'm watching these bees, you know, at different stages of their life cycle and they look so different. You know, what is that what does that look like for them to change from this like weird goopy blob to a hairy flying creature? And I never even I didn't even bring it up with my editor in the beginning because I, I thought I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. I don't wanna promise something that I can't deliver on, but I'm gonna work on it on the side. And so I was working with this this scientist who who had a lab set up with incubators and we were basically tinkering around over the course of a few months to, to make it happen. Yeah, so I want to get into, in a second, I want to get into the actual process of how you made the time lapse because it's, it's super fascinating. Essentially, we're talking about a short film where you know the viewer is essentially inside of a hive um, and is looking at a period of how many days? The development happens over 21 days. So over 21 days and you go from essentially seeing, you know, nothing to the, the total growth and evolution of a pupae, if you will, into a bee. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see sort of the, how that happens, not just the growth, but you also see um, other environmental factors that are happening in there. And it's, it's really beautiful. And the music is beautiful. Um, it looked like it was incredibly difficult to, I mean, I think about just probably people at home who try and do a time-lapse video of like all the people coming over to their barbecue and can't figure it out. Um, it looked really technical and difficult. Like how did you, how did you figure out how to do that? Yeah, it started out with, I, I was working with uh, a lab at UC Davis and uh, basically I was, I was trying to photograph a different aspect. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. honeybee research and i saw these you know refrigerators in the corner and i was like well, okay what are those uh, oh well those are incubators and we can basically set the temperature and the humidity level and we can basically keep our queens there when we're in the process of insemination i thought wait a minute if you can control the environment of this refrigerator sized space what would happen and if, if you can basically you know keep bees alive in this by mimicking their their hive environment can we keep them alive long enough in this artificial space that we can actually see them grow and develop? And the guy, Billy Sink, was the guy who was helping me there. And he, he was like, I don't know, nobody's ever tried that before. So we started by taking a frame out of a hive. And I, I, they start out uncapped. And so they're just these eggs in, these, in the honeycomb. And so you can, you can see, see them kind of wiggling around. In a frame is sort of like when people think about when they anytime they've seen a hive, it's sort of that like uh, rectangle. That's right, that's right. Yeah. It's like a rectangle thing, and there's sort of comb. It's like a board, it. yeah. Right. There's, so there's these series of boards, almost like shelves. And they sort of stack shelves. on top of each other, right? You can yeah, take well, it out and, yeah, they stack next to each other, and so you can you can pull one of them out, and we so we pulled one of them out, and we set the temperature, and and uh, I, I basically I built a frame out of eighty twenty, this sort of aluminum rods that could fit right into the space. And uh, I ran some power cables and, and had some, had that, the power management was one of the things I had to figure out. But then jammed some flashes in there, set it to go every five minutes, and then came back a week later, and I had a beautiful time lapse 
of ants coming in and destroying a bee larva. <laughs> and that was the first, I was like, okay, well, that kind of worked. Uh, and is this inside? This isn't outside, right? Like, no, it's, it's inside. The ants, the ants still found up, it anyway. Right? And so it's, and uh, so I didn't know, well, I was like, well, it took a, it took a couple, couple rounds just to figure out what the right temperature was. And, and the humidity was actually the biggest problem. We, we, we jammed a bunch of wet sponges in there to make sure the humidity was high enough. But then the humidity is so high that fungus grows on everything. And so fungus is growing on the lenses and the cameras and, and all over the hive itself too. And that's normally something that gets cleaned out by the bees. And so there's, there's all these kind of variables to, to try to juggle. Right. So in sort of deconstructing the hive to like put all this stuff around it, you've created essentially a whole bunch of environmental issues that make yeah. it really difficult for the bees to grow so that yeah. you can yeah. capture them on film. Yeah. But so it ended up having to just show small segments of this at a time. Uh, we weren't able to show like a single bee uh, throughout the 21 days, but that was okay because it was interesting. It's just so different scales, really close up and seeing the tissue morph and change and a little bit farther out where you can see the relationship between different larvae and, and you can actually see the mite show up that that's causing all these problems. And So, the, so it's essentially an edit of how many different... That's right. Uh, like are we talking um, like twenty different? Yeah, it was, yeah, I think it was around fifteen or so. Uh, in each case, I had I had two set up. I had two cameras going uh, at a time, and they would run for a week at a time. And so it was it stretched out over I think, six or eight months of driving up here, setting something up, coming back and checking out in a week, tweaking it, trying again. One of the um, really, I almost want to say shocking, uh, shocking parts of the film. You wouldn't think of a film about, you know, it's like showing bees as being shocking, but you mentioned it. There's this all of a sudden sort of about halfway through, I think there's this appearance of another insect. And yeah. It's a mite, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so these parasites that came, you know, they they originated on a different species of honeybee called the Asian honeybee, and they, they hopped over to European honeybee, and they've spread around the world at this point. And they're really... And that's because people are yeah, and moving so, bees around. Yeah, all the yeah, time, right? yeah. No, so we've had this really long relationship with bees, and originally it was it was about collecting honey, and now we've we've become more and more dependent on them to pollinate our food, and so people have been bringing bees around with them as they moved around the world, and people brought bees to the United States. They weren't originally here, anywhere in North or South America, and. And so, so how, there was this, how was food pollinated? It was just from birds and other types of insects. tens yeah. of thousands yeah. of other species of insects right. that pollinate food. Yeah. And the honeybee is one of them. The difference is that the honeybee is one that we can sort of manage. Right. Almost not quite like a domesticated animal, but we can, we can show up with a billion bees on a truck. And mm -hmm. you can't do that with monarch butterflies or hummingbirds or beetles or all of these other ones. And so previously we relied on the native pollinators and you know, as we changed our food landscapes, and those native pollinators didn't have habitat, or they there weren't enough of them to grow the number of almonds we wanted on this acre. You know, we started right. So we're, I mean, we're really looking bees. at a problem that was a solution for a a larger problem a longer time ago. Essentially, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, this is, yeah. yeah. And so, so basically, as we moved around these bees, we also moved around the the parasites that went along with them. And there was a long period in the United States where we didn't have to deal with this this mite, but when it came through, it really ravaged, you know, the bee populations. And this happened actually before this latest, you know, issues came up. And so people were really confused 10 years ago when bees started dying. I thought, well, this mite's been around already. Is there some new virus? Is there some new thing? 
And what they found is what seems to be the case is this mite causes this underlying stress that any new fungus or virus or pesticide exposure then kind of pushes the bees over the edge. And so the mite is this one that's ubiquitous. It's, it's in every hive that every beekeeper has to deal with. And so that's one of the major focuses of trying to solve this issue is can we find a better way of dealing with these mites? Because if we take them out of the equation, our bees are going to be able to handle all of these other stressors much more easily. So, so why can't, they, I mean, why isn't there some way of just getting rid of the mite? You know, like, is it, there's just too many of them. You can't see them. Like there's no. There are ways and they all have different trade-offs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right now they're using these a different kind of chemical to, that targets the mites. And that does a pretty good job but it also hurts the bees and the mites get resistant to it. And so it's, it's kind of like antibiotics. There's this sort of arms race. Uh, and then some bees, some kinds of honeybees are naturally resistant to those mites. And so people are trying to sort of exploit that behavior, but there's trade-offs there. Forget, you know, people have heard about killer bees and these are these, these Africanized uh, populations, but, without getting too far down that road, I mean, these are bees that don't really have a problem with these mites. They don't have a problem with colony collapse. They're doing just fine. The trade-off is they're really aggressive. Mm. And so are we okay with, you know, bees that are very robust but are more likely to sting us? You know, those are the kinds of trade-offs that people are are sort of dealing with. Interesting. There There are solutions, but they come with problems of their own. I mean, scientists knew this might were, was there, obviously, mm-hmm. um, but this is really the first time where they've been able to like just watch this, you know, watch this process in, it's not quite real time, but to, you know, yeah, yeah. no, I think, and that was one of the most rewarding aspects of it was, you know, I was working with this, with this researcher at Davis and I would show him these clips as I, as they came together and he was like, I don't think anybody's ever seen this. And so then to put it out online, um, and then to get feedback from teachers and scientists and beekeepers who just said, wow, you know, we've been doing this for 20 years or 30 years and we've never gotten to see this process happen. Or we never realized there's this, you know, at the end you can see them sticking out their tongues. And that's something that adult bees do to communicate with each other, but nobody knew that they were doing it just as soon as they were coming out of their hive. And mm-hmm. so there's these little tidbits where nobody's gotten really the chance to see that before and and again, it's, it just started as this way of I was curious about a process and I figured out a way to show it. And it was, it was so cool that it worked out in the end. What did you, you know, I talked a little bit at the top about um, the use of camera equipment. Uh, I, and I think that was something that you had to really work with, which is what type of cameras to use and testing different cameras and different frame rates and, and that kind of thing. Was that, a, I mean, you are a photographer, so, you know, you, you know a lot about that already you probably had to push a little bit deeper, I would imagine, even you know, for this project. Can you talk a little bit about the equipment you used and, and, and how it sort of enabled the, the film to come to be? Yeah, in terms of the camera equipment, it's fairly standard, you know, Canon 5D Mark II, 100 millimeter macro. Canon also makes a, a higher magnification macro lens, an MPE 65, which made that job a lot easier. I didn't have to adapt microscope lenses or anything like that. The flashes, again, the lighting is, is all from standard flashes. The part that I really had to sort out was how to position, how to power these things and how to position them inside of this cramped incubator. And so that took a little bit of hacking around to 
to figure out how to stabilize them, how to diffuse the light in that space. Um, when this fungus issue came up, I had to figure out how to sort of protect the camera from the humidity while allowing the bees to be exposed to the humidity. So there's some REI dry bags that got cut up and taped into play. <laughs> it's it's a it's it's not an elegant looking solution, but uh, there's you can't buy you of, can't buy this on the internet now, so that people can well you can buy all the parts. I mean, it's you know it's like fifty dollars worth of parts, sure. but uh, it's not really an off the shelf solution. Uh, how do you approach storytelling today with so many different opportunities to tell these stories? There's so many different, especially with photography. There's so many different platforms and so many different formats people are using. Whether it's you know small films or the amount of time a film can run or filters or the places they're displayed or you know that kind of thing. Is that something that you're you're focused on? Is looking at how do you use these different platforms to get these stories across in new ways? I mean, I think about, I end up thinking about that more at the end of the story than at the beginning. Uh, at the beginning of a story, I'm really focused on what is all of the visual potential here? Uh, what are the potential amazing images that can be made, the videos, if there's audio, and how do I pursue all of those things? Basically, regardless of the platform, the platform is kind of secondary. And then once I've figured out how to capture everything, then it's a question of how do we recut this? How do we present this on the platforms that exist? And the funny thing with bees, so bees ended up being the first instant article that Facebook published. They right. partnered with National Geographic. And that was a platform that didn't even exist when the story started. And the reason that it got chosen amongst all the other National Geographic articles that were in, in production at the time is that I had spent all this time doing these like side projects on time lapses or fiddling around with a high-speed camera. And I didn't do that because I knew Facebook was going to launch this interactive phone storytelling platform. Uh, and if I had been focused on, okay, what platforms am I shooting on and what's the best way to use those platforms, I might, it might have actually been more limiting than, than focusing on the content first and then uh, spreading it out to as many platforms as I could afterwards. And so that's, that's kind of my approach is just make, make the cool stuff, make as much cool stuff, and then you know worry about fitting the platforms that are available after the fact. I mean, and part of that's because these these projects last a year or two years, and so the platforms are evolving more quickly than the pictures are being made. So, Anand, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been great having you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Anand for stopping by and chatting with us. Oh, also. As you heard at the top of the show, the 21st Annual Webby Awards People's Voice Competition ends this Thursday, April 20th at 1159 PDT. That's Pacific Daylight Time. We talked a lot about whether it was PDT or PSD. It's PDT. This is your chance to vote for your favorite apps, websites, podcasts, videos, and more. The best of the internet. You get to vote. Visit vote.webbyawards.com and cast your ballot before it's too late. 1159 PDT on Thursday, April 20th. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe and leave us a review. It turns out that iTunes loves reviews. We'd really appreciate it. Our producer is Ben Wagner. Editorial help this week from Nicole Ferraro. Show music is Straight West by Casket Club. We'll see you next week.